the book starts out and, and says, the Father's plan from the beginning, whatever dispensations we had through time, was everything pointed from the beginning of creation to his son, Jesus, at one point speaking. And he would be the word. He would speak the word. He was the word. Um, and uh, and it's all through Christ. And of course, when we hear him, he says, come to him. Believe in him. Jesus says, the work of salvation has to happen. And then he did the work of salvation. He says, you're going to need to follow God. And that's why I'm here, so you can follow me. You need to hear the word of God. That's why I'm here, the word of God. Not only to hear me, but to see me. And these Jews, as we're going to discover later on in Hebrews, probably the predominant reason was persecution. That they were thinking of leaving Christianity for whatever reason. For sure they were leaving Christianity, these Jews. And they were basically saying, you know, in, in Judaism, we, we got it all. And so we started out in those first couple of chapters saying, we've got the ministry of angels. And, and he says, um, yeah, Jesus for a little while became lower than angels uh, when he became the sin of the whole world. Um, angels definitely aren't greater because they're not even greater than man. They're below men, men that are servants. And uh, of course, I'm sure Satan loved that one, right? It's angels, that's the answer. Right, right, right. Keep it coming, angels are the answer. He, he, that was his doctrine all along, wasn't it? And then we come to chapter three and it's Moses. And we got Moses. And he goes through chapter 3 saying, look, Moses was a great man, and he, he told you about the temple. You built the, or the tabernacle. You built the tabernacle. But um, Moses got you out of Egypt, but he didn't get you any further than that. And um, he basically brought you the law that, that killed you. And... Um, and showed you your sin. That's that's about as far as Moses has go. And besides, Jesus doesn't just speak about the temple. He is the temple. Jesus doesn't just speak about the high priest. He is the high priest. And he didn't just go into the temple that was built on earth. He went into the temple of heaven. And that's where he gave his blood sacrifice on the mercy seat. And so, yes, I, you know, angels are wonderful. There are ministering beings for us. Um, they're going to be around for all of eternity. But uh, they're no replacement for Christ. Moses was a wonderful man of God who there's really no other prophet like him. It actually says that. He was a very amazing guy that God used. But he is no savior. He didn't save anybody in his time, and he definitely uh, can't save anybody today. 
And so, as you remember, Moses couldn't even go into the promised land. Joshua had to go into the promised land. And Joshua said, I'm going to take you into this land with milk and honey, and there you're going to have this place of peace and rest, and, and you can walk with God and fellowship with God, and he'll show you where to put the temple, and there you build it, and, and all of this. And, and Joshua gave this incredible picture of, of basically glory. You know, you get into the promised land, and, and God's going to fight your enemies, and you're going to have, you know, land full of milk and honey, and there's going to be peace and rest, and the temple, and the Lord's going to be glorified in that place. And it never happened. But yet Joshua spoke of the day that it would happen. Moses says to Joshua, it's going to happen. Well, remember, Joshua, Yahshua, God is salvation. That is actually Jesus' name. He was probably never called Jesus. That's Greek. That's how we get the enunciation. If we were to say Jesus in English, it would be Joshua. If we were to say Jesus in Spanish, what is it? Yes, all you Spanish people. Next to Mexico. Jesus. So, but Joshua would do it. But it wouldn't be the Joshua immediately after Moses. It would be another Joshua that would come way after Moses. And that is Jesus. So in chapter 4-1 here, he says, therefore. And he's referring back to just quoting once again. He's continuing on in this chapter. Uh, and that's Psalms 95, verses 7 through 11, where there David, being filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying, say that these people went astray in their hearts and they never entered into the rest, although God swore that they would enter into the rest, but not these people. He swore they would never enter into his rest because of their unbelief. And so chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So he, he was talking again about how the children of Israel, they came right to the Jordan, and the spies went over, the ten, 12 spies, and they came back, and Joshua and Caleb are just so excited, these couple of young guys. They all bring this incredible fruit, and they talk about this land as great and huge and flowing with milk and honey. And he expects the older spies to give this wonderful report that their heart is full of faith, but these guys just start complaining. They want to kill Moses and Aaron, and when Joshua and Caleb start speaking in faith, they're like, kill those guys too. And, um, and, and the Lord says, they're not going over into the promised land. And so he, he says, in essence, you should look at their example, you Jews at this time who wanted to go back to Judaism and say, you guys are almost in the same place as your forefathers. Of course, going over the Jordan into the promised land is putting complete faith into Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and his resurrection. Right? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is that, that Christ died for our sins, Essential, there's no way we can be saved without our sins being paid for. That he was dead for three days, 
and that he rose again on the third day, and then he was seen by 500 people and then by a whole bunch of And after the resurrection, that's the gospel. That's it. That's all you got to believe in. AZ is right there. Christ died, he was buried for three days, and he rose again. That's the gospel. That's your Jordan that you've got to cross over. And to believe on Christ loving you enough to take your sins on the cross and pay for your sins and raise again for you and to call you to himself because he loves you and he wants you. Those are your giants. <laughs> to believe that, that God is who he says. But notice in verse 2, Indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. Back again in Numbers chapter four, uh, 13 and 14. Because it was not being mixed with faith to those who heard it. Now, remember God had said, I'm going to cross over the Jordan and I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to give you victory. And it doesn't matter who the enemy is. You've already won. So when Joshua and Caleb went over and they saw these giants and they saw these giant cities, it, it was irrelevant to them because God was going to be doing it. So yeah, it's not me against them. It's them against God. And, 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 and so they just had the word of God mixed with faith and they couldn't see anything but victory. It actually says... Those guys are our bread and butter. Let's go eat them up. And the guys were not mixed with faith. They were very angry at them. But you think about all the things God had been saying to them. We're in verse 2 now. He had been saying stuff like, How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He says, The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people, to be my people, God says. In Deuteronomy 4, he says, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his own presence and with his own mighty power. Look together at Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8. I'm going to read all of that. For you are a holy people to know your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy 10, he says, The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. He chose their descendants after them. You are above all peoples. Jeremiah 31, 3, he thinks it, put, it puts it really well. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. This was the word of the Lord. This is what God was saying to them. I love you because I love you. <laughs> I chose you because I chose you. You're precious to me because you're my people. I've got you and I'm never letting you go. 
And um, I asked them, were my burritos ready to start flashing that light? Is it starting to flash again? Um, so it's interesting that while God is speaking these kind of things, what are the children of Israel saying? In Exodus 14, there is their about ready to, after they left Egypt, and of course the, the river, the, the seas are in front of them, Migdal and Pyarihoth, and the armies of Pharaoh are chasing after them. And they immediately said to Moses, is there no graves in Egypt? That's why you've taken us away to die in this wilderness. And they go on and on. In Exodus 16, 3, right before God gave them manna, what did they say? You brought us up out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Right before he gave them water out of a rock. In Exodus 17, they said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children, our livestock, with thirst? And then in Numbers 14, when God was getting ready to say, Let's go across the Jordan and have victory. They said, Why has the Lord brought us to this land? to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. At that point, you can read in Numbers 14, God said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. <laughs> that generation will die in the wilderness. Now, let's understand. They were in the wilderness but God's presence was all over the place. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. I love the desert. <laughs> I, I go to the desert every bit of time I can. I think the desert's gorgeous and beautiful and quiet and still. And for me, it's very healing. But if I had a pillar of cloud, God's presence by day, I think I would love the desert a whole lot more. And then a pillar of fire by night. How gorgeous, how comforting, how uh, secure. And then you wake up every morning and you get donuts, right? That manna right there. Just scrape it off and fry it up any old way you want. And it's the entire food group. It's vegetables, it's meat, it's 100% every vitamin and nutrition you need is in that donut. Now, I do not know how things can get better. <laughs> Lord cursed me with that for 40 years. So let's understand. Yeah, yeah, they didn't go to the promised land, but they still had it pretty sweet. Unfortunately, they had themselves. You know, wherever you go, there you are. They still had their own stinking heart of unbelief. And so they made themselves continually miserable until they all died off. And Joshua and Caleb wouldn't be young men going into the promised land. They'd be old men going into the promised land. But Caleb in Judges 1 said, I'm 80 years old and I am as strong and as fit as I was when I was 40. Interesting. Their faith really sustained them. It didn't matter about the 40 years. God kept them like they were 40, even though they were 80. Well, these guys just would not believe. 
Therefore, they could not enter into the rest. And then there was this that point where just the rebellion of God saying, I love you. And they're saying, we hate you for trying to bring us out of Egypt. We loved Egypt. They had some onions and leeks and garlic. And we had bad breath, but, you know, we were slaves. But, man, we, you know, we should have stayed there. Because this walking by faith thing is hard. And it's miserable. Well, in verse 3, For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he said, I swore in my wrath, they would not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundations of the world. So as adamant as God was about, they shall not enter my rest, our Lord Jesus' day is as adamant to us who believe, you will enter my rest. And a matter of fact, it was all done way before the foundations of the world. You know, that, that's just a constant thing about Christianity. That should be just such an incredible, continuous comfort to us. That when we came to Christ, Christ had already preordained it that we would be his elect before the first tick on the clock. Before time ever began, he had already preordained and elected us to be his children. And so when we said, Lord, I am a sinner, be the Lord of my life, I believe you, Jesus, you love me. Don't know why, hate myself, but I believe you love me. And, and I'm the sinfulest person on earth, but you're going to present me to your Father one day, holy, without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. I believe you. Yeah, good luck. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> you know? And, and, and that moment we just say, Lord, I, I, I'm yours. And we open the door of salvation, and we walk in, and we shut the door, and there's written from before time that you were always coming through that door. Your name was already inscribed in that door eons before that we were coming. And so when we start to struggle, do any of you guys struggle? Stumble, sin, get angry, bitter, greedy? We, we, we just remember Jesus 2,000 years in advance took all our sins, all our sins. So we're in this valley of, of despair or sin or struggle or weakness, and we're going, this is all me. I should have, you know, my foolishness, my sin, my flesh. And then we're at the bottom of that pit, and we're just like, surely Christ didn't ever expect this. But the moment you look to him out of that pit like the prodigal son coming down that road, right? We realize, yep, he's already been in that pit. He's already taken that sin too. A sin you never thought you'd even be near. Yes, he took that. He paid for that on the cross. And so um, in 2 Timothy 1.9, it talks about this very thing. He who saved us and called us 
with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Why were we saved? Why were we given this holy calling? For his own purposes. And because he wanted to make us a trophy of his grace. The Bible actually says that in Ephesians. That, that Christ saved us, that we would be a trophy of his grace. And Paul said, of course, I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm the biggest trophy. And um, and again, it's, it's comforting to us to know that God has us from the beginning to the end. Before time began, and he's got us in eternity future that we can't even imagine right now. Remember John 3.16? You guys know that, right? Whoever believes in him shall what? Not perish, but? It doesn't say that you shall not perish, and you're given an opportunity if you play your cards right. And you don't screw up too much, and you're faithful, and you pray, and you read the Bible, and you you know live the kind of Christian life you should. There is a very good possibility, better than 50-50, that you may possibly have eternal life. That's not what it says, right? And, and that's why it's so clear to understand that that when we say Jesus be the Lord in our life, and we are born again. Even though in this life there are many tribulations and there's many trials, and so we're not in rest because we're fighting the flesh, the devil. We're fighting for the souls of men to be born again. But yet we, he's already spoken it. I have saved you past tense. I have called you past tense. I have called you holy past tense. Why? For my own purposes. And because of my grace. And and uh, and we're just there going, what who am I that you are mindful of me? And he's like, Man, I created you in your mother's womb in a precious way. I know your every hair on your head right now by number. And I've already seen you through eternity future, and I've called you to be my child and to eternity past. And, and so right now, we're just in this moment. This life is just a second, isn't it? To the, to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. If you're 50 years old, you know how many days you've had? 18,250. It's not very many, is it? 70 years old? 25,000-something days. Do you realize that? When Jesus said, we're like grass, and we just burn up in an instant, that's it. 25,000. You can hardly buy a car for that anymore. Those are, those are dollars. But, you know, we're 70 years old. We live 25,000 days. You know, it's like, wow. Live to be 100. 36,000 days. It's just not very many, is it? And then you calculate that out into weekends. It's like, no wonder. Life seems so fast. It is. That's why it seems so fast. 
It really is a short life. And so God is not looking at this little blip of time that won't even tick as a second when we've been with the Lord a couple of billion years. He's looking at this little blip of time and, and he saw us in eternity before that little blip and he sees us in eternity after that little blip. And he's like, it's, it's all by faith. That's it. Faith in what? Faith in God's word, faith in God's nature, faith in, in, in the work of Christ. I mean, in essence, if you're saying, yes, I believe Jesus died for me, but I'm still not certain if I'm going to heaven, then you're saying the cross is weak. You're saying the blood is weak. You're saying the 33 years Jesus was on this earth was weak. You're saying his word is weak. You're saying the Father's gift to you of his Son was weak and insufficient. You, do you understand? We, we are either saying, God, who made this world, it's his bat, it's his ball, he's the one who decided the rules, right? I mean, it's like somebody, the first guy inventing baseball, and he puts three bases out, and he's like, yeah, three strikes, you're out. It's like, and you're like going, hey, I think there should be four bases. I think the fields should be bigger. I think we should get five strikes. And the guy invented baseball. It's like, go invent your own game, right? Go get your own field. This is my land. This is don't don't call baseball. This is the only one called baseball. In the same way, this is God's planet. He made this place. Right? He made you and me. And so the idea that, that God is insufficient when he is God and, and knows all things, it, it's ridiculous. Well, in verse 4, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, if you look at Genesis, the end of chapter 1, and the beginning of chapter 2, it says it, I believe, five times different ways. It was done. It was finished. There was no more to create. Why did God stop after six days? Because it was finished. There was nothing more to make. Now, could God have continued to make stuff? God's infinite. But it was complete. There was nothing else needed. Now, let's do the math here. When was man created? At the very end of the sixth day. He was the last thing created on the sixth day. So man's very first day of life was resting in the finished work of God. That's all God asked for him to wake up and enjoy God. Enjoy what God had created for him. Enjoy what God had done for him. What was God's payoff? He would have fellowship with God. That God could walk with him in the cool of the evening and have fellowship with him. That was, that was the whole thing. Look at this incredible universe. You're like, what's the game plan? Me and Adam and Eve cruising to the garden at twilight and just enjoying their presence, enjoying talking to them, enjoying fellowship, enjoying 
seeing them splash around in the water and, and chase a lion around a tree. That, that was it. And so God did make one more thing. He made a seventh day. And he said, this is my nature. This is my creation. This is essential to have a complete week. Resting in the finished work of God. So when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. How are we saved? By being born again, we come into this world like a baby crying, wow, and what do we do as a born-again creature, brand-new creature? Our first step into that day, so to speak, is just fully resting in the finished work of Christ. And what does that look like? Enjoying. Perfect love casts out all fear. There is no more fear. There is just trust that he's my dad and he's got me. He's my shepherd. And he's got the responsibility, right? If I hire you to be a shepherd to watch a hundred sheep, and I come at the end of the week and you've lost five sheep, and then you start trying to tell me how bad these sheep are, who's going to get the scolding? The sheep? No, I, that's, those are your responsibility. And this is what God has said. And so he goes on in verse 5 to say, And again, in this day they will not enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience or unbelief, depending on the textual <laughs> variance. Um, and again, he, he designates a certain day saying, And David... Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. So David in Psalms 95, as we've been talking about, he prophesied, saying, and there's a point where that promise of Joshua is fulfilled. And, and this Joshua is going to say, today, it's here. Not, not, the, not the practice picture of going into the promised land, crossing the Jordan and fighting giants. This was the real thing. That was a shadow of the reality to come. The, the, the shadow was the children of Israel. The shadow was the Jordan River. The shadow was the, the giants in the promised land. That was all a shadow. The real promise that was prophesied that the Father said, ultimately, you got... All these different dispensations where you got the, the patriarchs and, and you got Moses and Joshua and then um, you, you got some prophets and kings and, and some more prophets and, 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 and finally the Moses, the Joshua, not a shadow, the crossing of the Jordan, the entering into rest is spoken in the Son. And he would come and say, today, it's finally here. It's finally being fulfilled. But we can read the book of Acts, can't we? But Paul said, it's essential we go to the Jews first, and then secondly, the, the Gentiles. 
But what often happened when he went to the Jews? Man, they got mad at him, didn't they? And he would kick the dust off his feet, and he says, you have um, chosen yourself to be rejected of God, and therefore I'm going to go to the Gentiles only and preach the gospel to this town. Right? And in verse 8 here, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. But Joshua did and prophesied that he would still be doing it, but not him, but one coming after Moses, a prophet of God coming after Moses. And that prophet was in the immediate fulfillment, the Joshua, but he took them into the literal promised land, but they never by faith received any rest. But really what Moses was saying when he said, a prophet after me will rise up. And he talks, Peter even mentions this in his sermons in Acts. He says, David being a prophet spoke of these things. And who did he speak of? That prophet, it's this Messiah, Jesus, whom you crucified, who God foreordained that he would die and raise again. Well, in Hebrews 4, verse 9 and 10 now, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So how did the Lord cease from his labors on that seventh day? He created no more. He was done. It was all completed. So what could he do on the seventh day? Oh, I need to shine this. No shining necessary. Oh, I forgot a plant. There was no forgetting of any plant. Oh, I want to create another river. All the rivers that were needed were there. There was no period crossing of T's. There, there was nothing that wasn't perfect. It was completely perfect. Completely finished. God didn't sit there going, now what did I forget? He was completely at rest, knowing it was a perfect, completed work he had done, and there was nothing more that he or anyone else could do. It was finished. So therefore, what happens when we enter into that rest? We are as confident as God is. We are as certain as God is. We don't just sort of, ah, I think I might rest. Oh, no, I can't rest yet. Oh, yeah, I can rest. Oh, maybe I shouldn't yet. No, it, 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 when you have faith, you boldly enter that rest. It is finished. First Corinthians 1, Paul says, Jesus did all the work in, in righteousness and holiness and sanctification that let him who glories, glory in the Lord. He did it all. A to Z. And this is what Paul's going to commit. Can you talk about through the book of Hebrews? So we are equally as confident that God's work was complete and there is nothing at all lacking. And therefore, we are at rest because we're not in our works trying to put the period, trying to cross the T, trying to make sure that we're saved. Well, yes, Christ died and rose again, and that's it, but 
No buts. Well, I still... No, you don't. Salvation was complete. There's nothing more for you to do. Galatians 2.16 says it plainly. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Even we who have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified now, guys, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So salvation is by grace. It's having faith in the grace. It's having faith that Jesus did it all, that Jesus wasn't insufficient, that he was completely sufficient, that every T was crossed, every I dotted, when before he said it's finished. He, he didn't give us a 99% salvation and 1%, that's it, 1% on you, that's it. No, that 1% is like Adam in the garden. Out of the gabillion trees on planet Earth, only one tree you can't eat, that's it. I mean, come on. Surely we can eat out of the gazillions of trees and not from that one. Now, we know about our human nature, don't we? If it's 0.00001% left to you, you will screw it up. No. There's only one way we can rest in our salvation, and that is if it's 100% done by God, guaranteed by God, sealed by God, completed by God, there is no nothing left for us to do. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you guys know these verses well. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that what? Not of yourself. It's a what? A gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but certainly have everlasting life. And David in Psalm 23, you know, right after he sinned with Bathsheba, his soul was destroyed. And there in Psalm 23, it says, The Lord restored my soul. He led me in the path of righteousness. I, I'm a sheep, that's why. He's going to get me there. He's going to make me lie down in those green pastures. And then that is the end. I'm dumbfounded as you are, but his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, whether I deserve it or not, whether I screwed up or not. <laughs> no matter what I do, God's going to be faithful. And I am certain I'm going to heaven. Not because I'm not the biggest screw up that's ever lived. I am. But because God has chosen me before the foundations of the world. And he's already seen me in, in the future, in eternity, billions of years. 1 John 5.13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. If you ever have 30 seconds with the Jehovah Witness, that's the verse, guys. Because they will tell you point blank, it's heresy to say you know you have eternal life. It's prideful. It's arrogant. It's sinful to say you have eternal life. Because nobody knows that until the day of judgment. And God says, oh, you know, 144,000 people go to heaven and all of us get to live on earth and mercifully annihilates everybody else. No. We know that we have eternal life. That you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God or in the nature of God. Romans 10, 8 through 13, we know that one well. 
What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if we confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, you might be saved. You will be saved. Okay, let me cover that again. Believe in your heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead. You'll be saved. For the heart one believes in the righteousness with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon his name. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, again, do I feel forgiven of my sins every time I ask God to forgive me? No, I often don't. You know, do, do, does it solve all the issues? No, but I, I know that God's faithful. That's it. God said he'd forgive me and cleanse me, then he will do it. I think of that thief on the cross. These guys are both mocking Jesus as they're on their way going down the road. And then um, on the cross, both of these thieves are mocking Jesus along with the crowd. You know, if you're getting ready to die, usually you're a little more sober-minded than this. You don't have energy to mock somebody else. But these guys were hardened criminals. They weren't afraid of death. And they're spending their energies agreeing with the whole crowd and mocking Jesus. But at one point, the, one of the thieves, he realizes, this Jesus is the real thing. And what does he say? Jesus, when, future tense, you come into your kingdom, remember me. He believed Jesus was Lord. If you look at all three Gospels, he says, Jesus, Lord, when you come to your kingdom, he believed he was going to raise from the dead. And what did Jesus say? Today, you're in rest. Today. There Jesus is saying it. The new Joshua would come on the scene and he would say, today, after such a long time, you will enter my rest. And he says to that thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. His hands are tied. His feet are tied. He's out of time. He never went to church. He never read his Bible. He never tithed. He never witnessed. He never went on a mission trip. He never had to deny himself, not even one second, and take up his cross and follow Jesus. He, he, he just was there being punished as an incorrigible criminal. And a few moments later, he would die. And guess what? He's going to be sharing the same heaven as you and I. Not as much reward, but he's going to be sharing the same heaven as you and I. Do you realize how much faith that took in that day? I mean, just think. This took a lot of faith. You, you just got through, you know, harassing a guy, making fun of him, saying all kinds of horrible, mean, evil things to him. And then I'm going to ask you to give me eternal life in your heaven, with you. I mean, tell me another human being 
that would be gracious towards you at that moment, especially when you got nails in your hands and your feet. It's sort of like, buddy, I'm a little preoccupied right now. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like in more pain than I've ever been in. But he just knew there is this God, Jesus, and he is just full of kindness and love and acceptance and forgiveness. And even though I haven't known him but a day, and in that time I've known him, I've only treated him horribly. I know right before he dies, right before I die, without me doing anything, that I can have eternal life because of his nature. Because of who he is. That's some serious faith, isn't it? But that, that is such a perfect picture for us. And now we're to remain this way. And this is what the end of, of Hebrews 4 is talking about. That once we enter that rest, as Romans 1.17 says, that the righteousness of God is revealed <laughs> from not just one faith, but two faith. That we started believing that salvation without works and we continue to believe salvations without works. But this is where, again, it's unclear to some Christians and to many Christian churches. And, and, and they start by saying, be a born again, come forward, pray this prayer, kneel at the altar, pray with me, whatever. But then soon thereafter, the church, sometimes ourselves, because it is man's nature to be legalistic. It's part of our fallen nature. And, and we say, thank you for the salvation, but, you know, i got to create in my mind this standard i got to get, i got to reach. And then, of course, once we reach that standard, what do we do? We raise it again. Pastors can do that for the church. You can do that to yourself. Spouses can do it to their spouses. Parents can do that to their children. And this is, again, why it's so important that we don't let the grace of God and salvation by faith alone turned into legalism after the fact. What did Paul say right after he said salvation is by faith alone? In Galatians 3, he says, don't try to perfect in your flesh what God has already done by his spirit. And so it's our human nature to try to start frustrating things, creating this, and start beating ourselves up. Oh, I don't pray enough, I don't read the Bible enough. I'm not holy enough. I don't, you know, have good enough feelings and thoughts. And no, the Christian life now is remaining in that rest, and that's our battle. To not let the world, the devil, ourselves, anybody take us out of that place, relating to God on the basis of grace, and relating to Him on the basis of faith. Christ is relating to us on the basis of grace, and we are relating to Christ on the basis of faith, right? God's giving us his love, his forgiveness, his compassion, and it's our job to, to, to have faith in that. But we can start saying, well, I've been a Christian 10 years, I should know better. Paul made it clear in, in Romans 7, our flesh isn't getting better, it's actually getting worse. Every decade you live, your flesh is getting better at stumbling your Christian life. Think about it. When do you really struggle with sin? When you feel tired and cranky and things hurt? 
That's what happens when you get older. <laughs> you know? That's, that's us. We have less energy to fight our flesh and the devil in the world. We have less patience with everybody else, including ourselves. So here are some facts to think about. There, uh, right before verse 11. God views us as completely righteous before him, holy and without blame. God does not keep a record against us of our wrongdoings. God does not condemn us, nor does he punish us. God is for us. He who gave his, us his son when we were his enemies will freely give us all things as his children. So here's an oxymoron in verse 11. So let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest. Lest anyone fall short according to the same example. And uh, we are going to have to stop there tonight. But before we finish, I want to read one more verse. And you know this one. Over in Romans chapter 5. It's probably at the very end of your notes here. Romans chapter 5. Well, actually, we'll start verse 1 and 2 and then skip down to verse 6 through 11. But Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, verse 6, the, the, the argument from lesser to greater. Romans 5, 6. For when we were still without strength, we were total sinners, didn't even think about God. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, for scarcely for a righteous man will one dare to die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that why we were still sinners, wicked, abominable, greedy, lustful, evil, angry, bitter, Christ died for us. Now, listen to verse 9. Here's the argument. So much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more now, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also now receive reconciliation. And then he goes on down in Romans 5, the second part of verse 20, where our sin abounds, grace abounds more. So when Christ entered our life, we, were, we didn't even think about how sinful we were, how holy God was. But then there's a moment where all of a sudden the guilt of our sin is upon us and what shall we do? There is no hope. And then we hear the gospel, the good news, that, that burden you're feeling, that conscience that's so weighing you down, all of it right now can be set free by believing in the work of Christ. And we did. And now here we are 10 years later as a Christian Maybe miserably doing so, a bad job right now. You're in a, a, a season of your life that you've been doing a miserable job. But wherever you're at in year one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, after being a Christian, 
we are not as far now as we were on that first day. And so if Christ is willing to forgive us all our sins and make us as white as snow, write our name in the book of life on that first day, then why would you think he would do something less for you 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later? We're still hopeless, but we're not as hopeless as we was on that first day. And so this is, again, we enter that rest, and now we're diligent to keep entering that rest by knowing that he started this, he's going to complete it. He's faithful even when we're not faithful. That's just his nature. Well, Lord, thank you for your word tonight, and we ask that we would just be so full of joy at this wonderful gospel, the simplicity of the gospel and the simplicity of Christ. And, and we know, God, that we as humans are simple individuals, but you made it so simple. It's not a hundred things. It's just all that can be put into one sentence. Christ died, rose again on the third day, and then was seen to be so by a multitude of people. And Lord, we thank you for your work. We thank you that we are set free. We thank you that you who created us also created salvation and that you love us more than we can ever even understand love. You have a mercy that we haven't even thought of yet. You have a, a kindness and a patience that no man on earth has even begun to touch. We thank you, Lord, that you are our Savior, not a man, not a jury. But it's you alone are our judge, and you have already judged us, forgiven throughout all of eternity through the work of your Son. We thank you. In Jesus' name.